you a question. Have you ever messed something up so badly that you felt like there was no way forward? You felt as though what you'd done had paralyzed you. It's dreadful, isn't it, that feeling? Humbled and all too aware of the consequences. We're joining King David in Psalm 51 today in our summer series in the Psalms. And it's a year on from his sexual sin against Bathsheba, the killing of her husband, Uzziah, the abdication of his responsibilities against Israel and his own family. And there are lots of things that I would like to say about that whole series of incidents. But today what we're actually going to do is go to Psalm 51 where in that psalm we see David repenting, getting on his knees, confessing his sin. And we can learn so much about how we respond when we mess up. All of us are capable of it, of messing up so badly that we feel as though there's nowhere else to go. And today, uh, we're going to see that even when you're someone like David who had a faith that was blazing and could be seen all across Israel and the nations around, can end up in such a, a terrible spiritual paralysis post-sin that he is just a flickering ember in comparison. So maybe that's you. Maybe today... You recognize, I've sinned. Maybe you're hiding that sin. Maybe you've stuffed it so deep down within yourself that no one can see it. Maybe you don't even really see it anymore. Well, if that's you, I think this psalm will be extraordinarily helpful to you. But it'll be helpful to all of us. Because none of us escape sin. It drives, this whole thing drives David to his knees eventually. And here we see his plea for mercy. So I'm going to invite Matty Moe to come on up. And he's going to pre- uh, preach. No, I'm going to do that. He's going to read from Psalm 51. Uh, Psalm 51, for the director of music, a Psalm of David's. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom to the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. 
Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And your good pleasure makes Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I think we better pray. Oh Lord. Lord, you are holy, holy, holy. So right now we, we bow the knee, we say, God, you are God. You are Lord of all. And we ask that you would send your spirit in great power and convict us. Convict us in our hearts and make our hearts like dry grass and come and Light the flame of your word. Lord, would you come and meet with us in your word? We do not want this to be an exercise where we just share knowledge. But would your Holy Spirit fall on us and would our hearts be changed? Come, Lord, and reverse what only you can reverse. Come and bring forgiveness and reconcile us the way that only you can. Make us right before you, God. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we're going to get some help here on how to pray when we repent, when we confess our sin. And the first thing that I want us to see is that we shouldn't wait do not wait. The final words of 2 Samuel 11 are quite the understatement. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. What David had done was awful. And so you can see why he maybe felt he should just sit and fester in the guilt and shame of it all for a while. Maybe he felt sorry for himself. Maybe he's measuring himself up by his own spiritual performance, his own moral performance, and he's saying, I ain't got it, and he'd be right. And if that was his measure alone, then I think he should just dwell in guilt. But sin forms a cavernous gap between us and God. Unconfessed sin is going to eat you up. 
And the more we ignore it, avoid it, deny it, the bigger the gap grows. An American writer and preacher, Frederick Buchner, probably butchered his name, Buchner said this, to confess your sins to God is not to tell him anything he doesn't already know. Until you confess them, however, they are the abyss between you. When you confess them, they become the bridge. David describes what the stink of isolating yourself in your sin looks like. My guilt, this is in Psalm 38, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and are loathsome because of my sinful folly. I am bowed down and brought very low all day long I go about mourning. Now that might sound to you like repentance. He feels really bad, right? But repentance is way more than feeling bad about something. In fact, feeling really bad about it isn't necessarily the beginning of repentance. People who are truly, truly repentant for what they have done don't brood in self-pity, but willingly accept the consequences that come because of what they've done. They don't demand forgiveness from people around them, but are amazed when people do. And when God does, they don't continue in their sin, but they look for ways to live more like Christ, to change their ways and turn to God's ways. And the only way to do that is not to feel really, really bad about it. The way to do that is to take it to God in prayer, is to confess your sin, confront your sin before God, this holy judge. Proverbs 28, 13 says, He who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it finds mercy. Which is it going to be? Taking your sin before God is not easy. You will have to face up to a God who is holy, 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 and the righteous judge overall. You will be confessing sin that is, has pitiful reasons for having you done it. But, as we will find out, there is no other way to genuine and life-restoring repentance. You must take it to him. David took over a year, and he needed the confrontation of the prophet Nathan don't let that be you. Don't sit in it for so long. Begin right now. Like even now, even as I'm speaking, start taking it to God. Take it is. Take it, whatever it is, to Him in prayer. Until that moment that you find yourself humble in prayer, no amount of feeling bad is going to help you. We mustn't be fooled into thinking that crying in the toilet, toilet is to be repentant. We need to run to the temple, to the presence of God, with contrite, confessing hearts. I know it can be seriously painful to unearth sin that is in, in your heart, particularly when you've dug it down deep, but we mustn't wait. That's why the Apostle Paul says to the church in Colossae, don't let the sun go down in your anger. 
one form, one way of sinning. Not righteous anger, but an anger of sin. Whatever you sin, whatever your sin is, don't wait. Go. Okay, here are a couple of practices, all right? We're going to try and get practical as we go through this. A couple of things that you can do to help you confront your sin and not wait. The first thing is to have an accountability partner or maybe a small group of people, two or three people, that you can get together with, you trust, you love, they love you, and you know that you can just bring anything before them, any sin that you might have committed, you can bring it before them. You can go really deep with them. Perhaps if David hadn't lost Jonathan, he wouldn't, this kind of series of sinful events may not have happened, first of all, and actually it, it may not have got as bad because he didn't, wouldn't have maybe have tried to cover it up. He might have gone and spoken to Jonathan quickly, or Jonathan might have seen something that he could intervene with. But he certainly wouldn't have gone this year of kind of spiritual darkness because he was unwilling to confront his own sin. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another. Let's do that. Second thing is when you spend time with God, make sure you have a regular time of confessing. We can miss that, can't we? We can, we can forget that. Actually, because we're people of grace, praise the Lord, we're going to get to that. David certainly gets to that. But we forget that we need to get serious about our sin. Confess it. Take it to God in prayer. So if you have to schedule that, then schedule that. Monday morning quiet time. Every Monday morning, I'm going to make sure there's a confession section. I'm just going to try and think of all the different things that, that maybe I can confess before God. Okay, second thing, okay. Get real. Get real about sin. We need to get real about what we're doing when we sin. Notice David uses three words to describe his sin. Sin iniquity and transgression. Strange sounding words, I know. And there's lots of baggage associated with them now. We're in a post-Christian society and that means that everything is judged through an old lens of Christianity that is often inaccurate. And it's very inaccurate when it comes to this stuff. So let's just define it and help us to see that actually these three words to find the problem of the world and our problems way better than any other explanation we can find. Sin in the Bible is often used as a catch-all, but here specifically it is to miss the target we were made to hit or not reach the goal we were designed to reach. We are made to live as God-glorifying beings made in the image of God shining a light back on God by the way that we live. And when we don't live like that, we are in sin. Short, missed the target of the glory of God. We think we can experience the glory of life elsewhere. But it's like playing football in the back garden when you've been selected to play in the Champions League that night. There's a great difference in the type of things that we think we should be living for and the one 
true reason for life, to live to the glory of God. Ever felt trapped by your own inability to be all that you hope to be? Ever think that whatever goal you set yourself, when you finally reach it, it's not quite right, like there's something missing, this isn't it? Yep, that's sin. That's sin. Second one, iniquity describes the way that we twist things for our own gain. This is the deceiving part of our hearts. It's a distortion of truth. It's how Satan tempted Adam and Eve. It's how he came to Eve and said, did God really say? And it spreads. It's attractive. It's the way of self-justification. And it's a way in which we can tell ourselves that actually we're doing okay, we're, we're doing all right, we're doing right, we're living the right way. And it's the part that says, how dare you, preacher, tell me how to live. Jeremiah says that our hearts are more deceitful than all things. We make up our own little narratives. We change the story slightly so we seem like we're better than we are. Think of this. The Russian narrative compared to our Western narrative on the conflict in Ukraine. To government-backed Russians, they are protecting Ukraine from foreign aggressors. They are liberating Russians who have been forced to call themselves Ukrainian and restoring historically Russian land. And most of us in this room would say that's nonsense. But you can see how people use a, a story about exactly the same thing to justify their actions. We do it all the time. In the same way, two married people might be having an affair. And they've told themselves they are acting on love that they cannot control. We didn't choose this. Love chose us. We're liberating one another from dead marriages, lifeless marriages. And hey, we're not doing anyone any harm. We're discreet. In total contrast, Jesus says, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Beware of the human tendency to twist truth. Transgression. Now this is the Frank Sinatra kind of moving away from God. The classic last song at the pub karaoke and the old guy gets up on the mic and he starts singing, I did it my way. When he really should have done it, sorry I know that was dreadful. (laughs) He really should have done it his wife's way and gone home a few hours earlier. It's the deliberate choice to cross a line set out by God to consciously move in our own way instead of the way set out by God. People are missing the true glory of life, changing the story to suit their own agendas and insisting their way is better than God's way. My problems, your problems, the world's problems are defined perfectly by this biblical ancient language. It is not out of touch. It is true. So each time we come to confess our sin, 
and by sin I mean the catch-all version, we aren't just saying sorry. We are actually making a grand and cosmic statement about what life is, who has given life, and about the way he has called us to live. We are saying to the world and we are declaring to ourselves that there is a way better way. Probably used way a bit too many times there. Against you, you only have I sinned, says David in verse 4. He is not saying he didn't sin against Bathsheba. He is not saying that he didn't sin against Uriah. Uzziah. He didn't say, he doesn't say that he, his family or the people of Israel weren't sinned against and all of his actions. In the end, confessing sin is about being laid before a holy God who has a way, way better way. Do it again. He's saying, even if the whole world was to overlook your sin, our conscience is not accurately accurately measured in conversations with our friends at cafes and bars, but in the courtroom of God. We betray our maker and our true image-bearing purpose when we sin. David remembers what God said through Nathan in verse 4 when he concedes, you're right, what I have done is evil. He faces up to his sin. So like David finally does here, we need to be a people who face up to sin, who regularly get on our knees before God and we confess with God's prophetic word in hand, with his measure of what sin is, not our own. It's defined by God. They get in our faces before him. So when we confess, when we share with our accountability partners, when we confess in prayer, we do it under the authority of God's word. God confronted David by speaking through Nathan's prophecy, and we have it here in the Bible. So read it that way. It's time to get real with sin and with what's really going on here when we do. Number three, look to God. Now that might seem like the most obvious statement. Come on, Ian, of course, we're, we're already in prayer here. You're saying we're doing all these things in prayer. So when I'm praying, of course I'm looking to God. Come on. But when you come to pray, knowing you've sinned, you're actually in a very vulnerable position. It becomes very easy to be religious. That is the self-protective way. Because you don't want to bear all. It's uncomfortable. But we must so that we can look to God. God wants your relationship. He doesn't want your religion. He wants you, ultimately, to be reconciled to him. Notice something about David's prayer of repentance. He doesn't just pray about his sin. He simultaneously, and that's really important, he doesn't even have, in this psalm, it's not like he has three verses of, oh, pain, suffering, sin, guilt, ah, at the same time when he's confessing, he talks about the character of God. He talks about a God 
of unfailing love. He talks about a God of grace. The hope here is to be reconciled to God. So when we come to confess sin, we're not just coming to say sorry and get a tick, to say, okay, well, that one's done. We're coming to be reconciled to God, to be in relationship with him again, for that to be restored. It's about God. There's certainly an abundance of vocabulary for sin in the Bible, but it is more than matched by the vocabulary of grace. Let's just look at what we have here. Verse 1 is merciful. His love is unfailing. He is compassionate. He blots out transgressions. Verse 2, he washes away iniquity. He cleanses sin. Verse 8, he restores joy and gladness to sinners. Verse 10, he creates pure hearts. Verse 11, he, his presence is near. Verse 12, he restores joy. He changes the will. Verse 14, he delivers and saves. Verse 17, he does not despise the repentant. Our sin is serious, but it's no match for the grace of God. David understood God's holiness as he wrote this and the seriousness of sin, but what broke his long spiritual stupor was the abundant mercy and grace of God. Without his grace, there would really be no reason to hope. <laughs> but there is grace in abundance for you. I've read this quote a couple of times as I've preached and I just don't care because it's so good. It's by Dane Ortland in his book, Gentle and Lowly. It kind of sums up his book. It says, The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. Don't decide for God whether or not he should come to you. Let him decide. And you know something? No matter how undeserving you are, he will come. That's why Jesus comes in the first place. He says it, doesn't he? He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. One of the ways the enemy wants to twist the story is to say that God may have come for that person or that person, even that person. Yeah, they were awful, but not you. Yes, he has. He has come for you. Let's just, let's just destroy that lie right now. He has come for you, for you. He loves you, he adores you, he went to the cross for you. And he saw you in your sin, the sin that you think makes you somehow unable to be in the presence of God, not someone worthy that God would call, not someone that God would bring close to him. And he saw it and he loved you. And he loved you so much, he came for you. And he set out for the cross deliberately. He said, oh, I love you so much. I'm, I want to take on 
all that judgment you do deserve, but I'm going to take it because I love you. I don't want you to ever have to bear it. I will bear it for you so that you can be released and set free and come to know my father and be a son or a daughter like I am to him. And it's going to be this wonderful, glorious, eternal dwelling with him. Not many people will be encouraging you to self-flagellation these days. But people will think this. Uh, I hope you wear your sorry on your face long enough to prove that you're actually sorry. Uh, And I want to see it happen for an appropriate length of time, thank you. And that's usually by people who have been hurt by the thing that you have done. And they may be struggling with something that God doesn't struggle with. God does not struggle with forgiving you. God does not struggle with compassion towards you. God does not struggle in his love for you. He never does. He never will. Sin had ruined David like a toxin flowing through his body but he knew that God could cleanse him. Verse 7, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. You see that? I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Now hyssop was a herb used um, often in cleansing rituals. And one of the ways we see it used was at the Passover. It's often associated with blood, the cleansing of blood. And they would take hyssop that night, the Passover night when the angel of death passed over uh, the homes of those who had dipped the hyssop in the blood of the lambs and they had wiped it over the door frames so that when the angel of death came, this judgment that was coming, instead of receiving judgment, they received mercy. And so David calls on this God who he knows is merciful. He trusts in him. And in the same way that they smeared the blood of the lamb over the the door, David was doing the same thing in his prayer. And for us, we know now that that wasn't just ceremonial. It wasn't just some kind of symbolism. We know that the lamb of God has come to take away the sin of the world. We know that the blood was not just a sign but it pointed to the Lamb of God, Jesus himself, who went to the cross and died in your place. And through that blood, you are cleansed. You are made new. You are righteous. You can trust in the blood. It speaks a better word than any other word upon this earth. You can trust that he has come to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he now calls you righteous. No longer a sinner, but righteous. Hallelujah. Look to God as you pray and you will see him not repulsed by you, but moving towards you. I mean, he moves towards you in love. Have you done something awful? Probably. You should get real with your sin, but don't let it steal the joy of God's surprising and wonderful grace. So go to God's word and confess according to what it says about sin, but at the same time, 
not after some long guilt fest, receive his grace that he freely pours out on you. Look to God and you will see mercy and love. Last thing, aim for glory. When John the Baptist prophesied around the dusty roads of Galilee, he said, repent. So we're talking about here repentance, isn't it? Repent. Why? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Some of you were memorizing your scriptures there. Saying it with me. Love that. Do you want to see God's kingdom advance? Do you? Do you want to see his church renewed? Do you want to see the Spirit of God poured out on the church and around Glasgow and in Scotland? It begins with repentance. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he says, And we all, who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. We are the church for God's glory, and Glasgow's good, but if we want to see his glory shine, then we need to lay ourselves bare before God. Nothing hidden. No competing desires. Just a humble and repentant people who have received and are changed from glory to glory by the grace of God. Do you remember the wee guy Zacchaeus? Tax collector. Had to climb a tree to see Jesus. He was robbing God's people of their hard-earned cash. Getting rich off the oppressing Roman forces. People were disgusted by this guy. But after an encounter with Jesus, he repents and he puts his faith in God. And because his repentance was genuine, he didn't just sell up, run away to another town where it'd be easier for him to live. He didn't keep robbing God's people. Instead, what did he do? He started to give some of that money back to the people. You see, the gospel changes people. Repentance leads us to an encounter with God and then we see something of his love and glory and goodness and we want to bear that image. We want to be like him and we start to change our ways. The gospel changes us from glory to glory. Right before the church was born, uh, Peter preached the gospel at the Pentecost festival. Many of you will know this story. People are hanging on every word as Peter preaches his message. And people are cut to the heart. They ask the disciples, when they are cut to the heart, what must we do to be saved? And what does he say? He says, repent. And right there, God's Spirit is poured out in the church. Filled with new life and power through God's presence. From there, the kingdom of God moved powerfully throughout Jerusalem and then Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth.
How did it happen? God's glory being revealed by his spirit birthed a new people and birthed the church in doing so. People were saved, churches were established, an outpost of God's glory, churches were started. And then they started other new outposts of God's glory. I like that way of thinking about who we are. We're outposts of God's glory. Planted churches, people who have received God's grace and want to live holy lives, who want to not miss life's goal, but live to the glory of God. The gospel changes us from glory to glory. When David cries out in verse 11, do not take your spirit from me, Lord. Yes, he's asking for God's comfort. Yes, he's asking for God's intimacy and joy and the power to keep going. But what is the fruit of that? What comes from that? He's got this relationship. He's in the presence of God. He knows that he needs God's presence with him. But what comes from that? What is the fruit? Look to the consequences in verse 13. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. True repentance is the beginning of a grace-given, spirit-filled life that shines brightly for God. Not put under a basket, but shining for all to see. A life that wants to tell everyone about the unfailing love of God. For those like us, who are sinners and have been saved by God from it and given a new life, a righteous life to live. The gospel changes us from glory to glory. So don't start with, I must love, I must do this, I must do that. No, 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 no. Don't start there, please. Start with humble confession, a contrite heart, and let God minister to you grace and love. You can receive grace and love right now. No matter what you've done, no matter how far you feel from God, I want you to know you can receive God's grace and love right now. And then go and be what you've received. Share the good news. Live a life to his glory. Confess your sin, yes. Don't wait to do it. Get real. Look to God and aim for glory.